1: In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. Last week I said in my article in the Washington Times that the self-evident truths and unalienable rights that are the bedrock of our society have their source in God and the Bible. And one of my critics responds and says, you're an idiot. That's not true. And that our founding fathers made it very clear they disagree with you. Is this guy right or wrong? I'm Dr. Ever Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning, and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. Well, as I said in the introduction, today's show focuses on a response I received from my recent article in The Washington Times. Frankly, the article that I wrote this last weekend for The Times was essentially a written version of the podcast and radio show here on The Rebellion that I issued last Friday, where I talk about the religion of America right now being narcissism and how we've abandoned the objective standard of truth as revealed to us in the Bible, as given to us by God, and we've started worshiping a bunch of little gods. We've become a nation of narcissists. We reject the God we see in the Bible and start worshiping the God we see in the mirror, and therefore We're a nation not of monotheists any longer, but a bunch of polytheists. We've got millions of little gods. We've got as many gods as the Hindu faith. Millions and millions of little gods. Because the god we see in the mirror is the one we worship constantly in our culture right now. I said last week that Me Too, Black Lives Matter, critical theory, cancel culture, the cry for safe spaces. All of this is grounded in the perpetual selfie. It's all about me. It's all about mine. It's all about you offending me, you taking what should be mine. It's perpetual adolescence. It's this teenager pout of, you've made me feel uncomfortable. Shame on you. I'm going to cry. I'm going to whine. I'm going to blame you for all of my problems. I'm not going to take personal responsibility because it's your fault. You offended my God, and my God is me. That was my podcast. That was my radio show last Friday. Well, I decided to write my Washington Times Weekend column on that very thing. Essentially, it's just a, a, an abbreviated version of last Friday's show. But in that column, I said this as I was wrapping up, coming to a close in that article. I said, since the founding of America, the self-evident truths and unalienable rights that form the bedrock of our society have found their source in God and the Bible, And the rejection of this foundation goes hand in glove with the rejection of objective truth and the consequent loss of humility we see in the next generation of American leaders. I went on to say this. We all need to find an explanation for the reality in which we live. And that explanation must come from somewhere other than ourselves. In comparison with my critics... Who say that my conservative views are arrogant because I think I'm always right? My source of truth is not myself, but something bigger and better and wiser than me. My critic's source goes no further than what they see in the mirror. They know more than anyone else who's gone before them what's true and what's false. They are the ones they've been waiting for, and they are the change they seek. They can stem the ocean's tide, calm the nation's storms, control the world's climate. They can redefine biology, ignore genetics. They can declare that men are women and that it's true that nothing is true. They know more than even God himself. Well, in response to my article, I received an email. Sometimes it amazes me how much time people take to figure out how to contact me and then just unleash their anger, the vitriol, their hatred all under the banner of inclusion and love, I might add. Well, here's a guy by the name of Joseph. He emailed me within minutes of my Washington Times column being published. Here's what he said. I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll take a break, and then I'm going to respond after the break. He says this, Coming from an election denialist who advocates serial liars like Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson. This is quite, quite rich, he says. Uh, Sidebar here, the article has nothing. My comments have nothing to do with Donald Trump. This is... Trump derangement syndrome, TDS to the extreme. And what does it have to do with Tucker Carlson? Nothing. I don't mention either one of these guys. And this critic all of a sudden runs down this rabbit trail, this non sequitur of bringing up Donald Trump again. And Tucker Carlson, I don't even know where that comes from. But anyway, he says, I'm (laughs) I'm an election denier, too. Uh, Again, my article has nothing to do with the election. It has everything to do with defending the concept of objective truth and challenging the narcissism of our culture. All right, that's his first sentence, his opening salvo. But here's the one I want you to focus on before we take a break. He says, by the way, the founding fathers were quite careful in their choice of language as well as very vocal in their hostility to the idea of any church running the state. Being a scholar, and he puts that in quotation marks, I think you'd be a little bit more familiar with American history. Either you're ignorant or you're a liar. As for arrogant, it's impossible to exceed the arrogance of the right. Okay? So, is he correct? Is he correct when he says, By the way, the Founding Fathers were quite careful in their choice of language as well as their very vocal hostility to the idea of any church running the state. Being a scholar, I think you'd be a little bit more familiar with American history. Either you're ignorant or you're a liar. That's the comment I want to zero in on. Is he correct in saying that the founding fathers had a hostility to the idea of religion being involved in the government of America? Is that a correct statement? Is it historically accurate? He's the one who's bringing up knowledge of American history. So I'm going to respond to this after we take a break. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. I'll be right back in a couple minutes.
0: The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one year maintenance, and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need, sold. The Patriot Auto Group, proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve.
1: Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. For the rest of the show, I'm just going to read to you actual quotes from some of America's presidents. I'm going to start out with George Washington. We're going to go through uh, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Jackson, the list goes on and on. I'm going to take these quotes from an article written by Ben Johnson on February 20th, 2023, for President's Day. The title of the article is, The Best Gift, 20 Presidents Speak on the Bible and Christianity. He actually published this article in The Washington Stand. Again, it was published on February 20th, 2023. The title of the article is, The Best Gift, 20 Presidents Speak on the Bible and Christianity. Ben Johnson is the author. Now, I don't have time to get to all 20. At least I'm assuming I don't. But I'm going to start out from the beginning. We'll just continue to read these quotes. And I want you to be thinking about the accusation that was fielded against me in my article. My intelligence is being challenged. As a scholar, I would think you'd understand American history a little bit better. Either you're ignorant or you're a liar, is what I was just told That's the thing I was criticized of. That's the context, that's the premise of the critique against me arguing that from the beginning of our country, God and the Bible has served as the context for self-evident truths and, and unalienable rights. The bedrock of our free society is grounded in the Bible, not narcissism, but the God of Scripture. So am I ignorant of American history? Is this guy right in claiming that our founding fathers were very careful to make sure that none of this religious stuff got uh, incorporated into our Constitution and that there's always been this wall of separation of church and state, and our founding fathers did not want the church intruding into the government at all. In fact, they had a hostility toward that idea. Is that true? Well, let's start out with George Washington. Here's what he said. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them, a volume of could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which the instruments of investigation in courts of justice hold? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. He goes on. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principles. It is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. The rule indeed extends with more or less force to every species of free government. Who, that is a sincere friend to it, can look with indifference upon attempts to shake the foundation of the fabric? Question mark. George Washington's farewell address, 1796. He's clearly saying that religion, and what's he talking about? He's not talking about New Age religion. He's not talking about Buddhism, Hinduism. He's not talking about Baha'i faith. He's not talking about Islam. He's talking about Christianity, and he's saying that this religion, this religion of Moses and Jesus, this biblical faith that sets the parameters for human dignity and human freedom, it's the only foundation we have that is grounded in the immutable truths, the self-evident truths, the unalienable rights that serve as the bedrock of a free society. Of this American experiment. That's what he's saying. Who can look at these things with indifference? And in doing so, if you do look at them with indifference, you're shaking the very foundation of the fabric of American culture. That's George Washington. Hmm. Well, if that's not enough knowledge of history, if that's not enough scholarship for my detractor, then let's go on to John Adams. We have no government armed with power, capable of contending, with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That's John Adams. And that's the a letter that he wrote to the Massachusetts militia. In 1798, our Constitution is made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Who who would argue that we could have a government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion? Avarice, ambition, revenge would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through the net. Our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. And again, he's referring to Christianity. That's indisputable. He wasn't arguing for narcissism. He wasn't arguing for self-worship. In fact, he's arguing against it because he talks about human passions unbridled by morality and religion. In other words, you have to have a fence to have freedom, the paradox of discipline and freedom. All right, let's go on to Thomas Jefferson people like my critic would argue that Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian, that he was a secularist. He was just a deist. He didn't really believe in the, in the Bible. All right, let's, let's just, what did he have to say? He says this, Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are a gift of God, that they are not to be violated but with his wrath? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. That's Thomas Jefferson. Again, who do you think he's talking about? Which God? The one you see in the mirror or the one you find in the Bible? How about James Madison, 1772? He says this, A watchful eye must be kept on ourselves, lest while we are building ideal monuments of renown and bliss, Here we neglect to have our names enrolled in the annals of heaven. Again, this is a biblical reference. Having our names enrolled in the annals of heaven is a reference to salvation through Christ, attending to the religion of Scripture, the Bible. John Quincy Adams, this is in 1837. This is his quote. Why is it that, next to the birthday of our Savior of the world, your most joyous and venerated festival returns on this day? He's referring to the 4th of July, by the way. Is it not that in the chain of human events, the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior? That it forms a leading event in the progress of the gospel dispensation? Is it not that the Declaration of Independence first organized the social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon earth? That it laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity and gave the world the first irrevocable pledge of the fulfillment of the prophecies, announced directly from heaven at the birth of the Savior and predicted by the greatest of the Hebrew prophets 600 years before? Close quote. Does that sound Christian to you? Does that sound like hostility toward the church, the body of Christ, Christian faith, and the importance of godliness if you're going to have a government that protects our freedom? He goes further and says this, John Quincy Adams still, that's who I'm talking about right now. He says this, The law given from Sinai was a civil and municipal as well as a moral and religious code. It contained many statutes adapted only to that time and to that particular circumstance of the nation to whom it was given. They could, of course, be binding only upon them and only until abrogated by the same authority which enacted them, as they afterwards were by the Christian dispensation." But many others were of universal application, laws essential to the existence of men in society, and most of which have been enacted by every nation which ever possessed any code of law. The law thus dispensed was imperfect. It was destined to be partly superseded and improved into absolute perfection many ages afterwards by the appearance of Jesus Christ upon earth. Close quote. That's John Quincy Adams, hostility toward the church and Christian faith, hostility toward an objective standard dictated by God, revealed by God, as opposed to the subjective chaos and mush that we're seeing from the progressive left today. Okay, let's go on. Andrew Jackson, he said this, I was brought up a rigid Presbyterian. "...to which I have always adhered. Our excellent Constitution guarantees to everyone freedom of religion and charity, tells us, and you know charity is the real basis of all true religion, and charity says, judge the tree by its fruit. All who profess Christianity believe in a Savior, and that by and through Him we must be saved." And then he goes on, he says, "...we ought therefore to consider all good Christians." whose walks correspond with their professions, be him Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Baptist, Methodist, or Roman Catholic. Close quote. That's Andrew Jackson. Now, what's he arguing for? He's arguing for mere Christianity, basically C.S. Lewis's comment here, that if you believe in a Savior, and that you will be judged by him, and that you are saved through him, that that is true religion, and that religion serves as the bedrock of our free society. That's what Andrew Jackson is saying. And don't tell me, yeah, well, Andrew Jackson was a bad man. All of the people that I'm quoting right now are broken, sinful human beings, as are you and as am I. God works through broken people because he doesn't have any other type of people to work through. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a biblical truth, regardless of your church. Let's go on to Abraham Lincoln. He said this in 1864. In regard to this great book, what's he talking about? No, not the Book of Mormon. He's not talking about the Koran. He's talking about the Bible, folks. In regard to this great book, says Lincoln, I have but to say it is the best gift God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. But for it, we could not know right from wrong. All things most desirable for man's welfare, here and hereafter, are to be found portrayed in it. To you I return my most sincere thanks for the very elegant copy of the great book of God which you present. He wrote this as a letter to the loyal colored people of Baltimore upon presentation of this Bible. He sang this to a group of African Americans, of blacks, and he's thanking them and saying that we are one humanity, one body of Christ, as defined in this great book, the Bible, that has been given to us by our Savior. Does that sound like he is hostile toward Christianity, religion, the Bible, as the bedrock of our freedoms? Let's go to Rutherford B. Hayes. He wrote this in 1890. President Hayes. Now the best religion the world has ever had is the religion of Christ. A man or a community adopting it is virtuous, prosperous, and happy. What a great mistake the man makes who goes about to oppose this religion. What a crime, if we may judge, of men acts by their results. Nay, what a great mistake is made by him who does not support the religion of the Bible. Close quote. That's Rutherford B. Hayes. Does it sound like he's antagonistic or hostile toward religion? Does it sound like he believes that the church should stay out of the business of government? doesn't sound like that, does it? Here's another entry he made in his diary in 1890. The religion of the Bible is the best in the world. I see the infinite value of religion. Let it be always encouraged. The truth in it is one of the deep sentiments in human nature. Let's go to William McKinley. I assume the arduous and responsible duties of the President of the United States, relying upon the support of my countrymen and invoking the guidance of Almighty God. Our faith teaches that there is no safer reliance than upon the God of our fathers, who has so singularly favored the American people in every national trial and who will not forsake us so long as we obey his commandments. And walk humbly in his footsteps. And how do we know what his commandments are and his footsteps are? We know those things through Scripture, the Bible. Again, not very hostile toward the religion of Scripture. The God of the Bible. Christianity, is it? Let's go to Teddy Roosevelt. The teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally. And I do not mean figuratively. I mean literally. Impossible for us to figure to ourselves what that life would be if these teachings were removed. We would lose almost all the standards by which we now judge both public and private morals. All the standards towards which we, with more or less resolutions, strive to raise ourselves. Close quote. That's Teddy Roosevelt. How about Woodrow Wilson? Let's go on, 1911. This is a book, he says, which reveals men unto themselves, not as creatures in bondage, not as men under human authority, not as those bidden to take counsel and command of any human source. It reveals every man to himself as a distinct moral agent, responsible not to men, not even to those men whom he has put over him in authority, but responsible through his own conscience to his Lord and Maker. Whenever a man sees this vision, he stands up as a free man, and whatever may be the government under which he lives, if he sees beyond the circumstances of his own life. Close quote. This is a direct affirmation of government grounded in the book, the Bible, and the authority of God as described in that Bible. He references our Lord and our Maker. Who's he talking about? Jesus. How about Warren Harding? I must utter my belief in the divine inspiration of the Founding Fathers. So he's saying that the Founding Fathers were divinely inspired. He goes on and says, Surely there must have been God's intent in the making of this new world republic. And then he concludes by saying, We have seen the world rivet its hopeful gaze on the great truths on which the Founders wrought. We have seen civil, human, and religious liberty verified. And glorified. That was in his inaugural address in 1921. Here's Calvin Coolidge. It's but natural that the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence should open with a reference to nature's God and should close in the final paragraphs with an appeal to the supreme judge of the world and an assertion of a firm reliance on divine providence. You notice what he's doing here? He's, he's reminding us that the Declaration of Independence refers to nature's God, a supreme judge, and then a divine providence. He's talking about the God of the Bible. And then he goes on, he says, It's no wonder that Samuel Adams could say the people seem to recognize this resolution as though it were a decree promulgated from heaven. No one can examine this record and escape the conclusion that in the great outline of its principles, the Declaration was the result of the religious teachings of the preceding period. The profound philosophy which Jonathan Edwards, applying to theology, the popular preaching of George Whitfield, had aroused the thought and stirred the people of the colonies in preparation of this great event. No doubt the speculation which had been going on in England, and especially on the continent, lit their influence to the great sentiment of times. Of course, the world is always influenced by all the experience and all the thought of the past, but when we come to a contemplation of the immediate conception of the principles of human relationship which went into the Declaration of Independence, we are not required to extend our search beyond our own shores. They are found in the texts, the sermons, and the writings of the early colonial clergy who were earnestly undertaking to instruct their congregations in the great mystery of how to live. They preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. They justified freedom by the text that they were all created in the divine image, all partakers of the divine spirit. This can't get any clearer. And this was written by Calvin Coolidge in 1926. Here's Herbert Hoover. Again, I won't have time to get to all 20. Here's what Hoover said. This civilization and this great complex, which we call American life, is built and can only survive upon the translation into individual action of that fundamental philosophy announced by the Savior, 19 centuries ago. Part of our national suffering today is from failure to observe these primary yet inexorable laws of human relationship. No government action, he says, and no economic doctrine, no economic plan or project can replace that God imposed responsibility that the individual man and woman to their neighbors. That is a vital part of the very soul of our people. How about FDR, Franklin Roosevelt? Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nations, this day have set upon our mighty endeavor a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, and steadfastness in their faith. This is a prayer that FDR is uttering. He goes on, They will need thy blessing, God. Their road will be long and hard, for their enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. Some will never return, he says. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom." Does it sound like he's hostile to religion, to God, to the Bible, and to eternity in heaven with him? I don't think so. I'm Dr. Ever Piper, and this is The Rebellion.